The internet is an ocean that we invent as we explore it. In the murky darkness of virtual places, there could be dragons, shagoths, leviathans. Certainly I have heard voices on the web who say we will discover or build a god when we reach the cyber ocean floor. People claim to remember past lives, I claim to remember a different, very different present life. The psychotic drones, where the mystic swims, they're drowning. All right. Today I'm joined with Zero HP Lovecraft, uh, the future of science fiction. One of the greatest uh, writers of fiction today. I'd like, to, uh, I'd like to inflate his ego with that. I don't know how he feels about that. He's a modest guy himself. But uh, Zero, I've told you many times, this, this podcast probably wouldn't exist without you. You inspired me to, to get this started and to do this work, to try to talk to self-published authors and internet authors and internet thinkers. So thank you very much for sitting down with me and uh, uh, making this real, you, you, I owe a lot. I owe a lot of my inspiration to you. So to have you as a guest is uh, is just coming to fruition for me. It's, it's my pleasure. Uh, thanks for having me. Well, thank you very much. And uh, we had some technical difficulties, so this is our second time sitting down. And um, there, there's several. Your hand is in so many pots. You got your. You got your. Uh, foot in the door of so many different internet genres with uh, fiction, nonfiction. You're, you got a big Twitter account. You're working on, you're working on publishing your own book. You have your own Substack, And I really want to talk to you about all of it. Uh, but it's really, it, you, you, you do so much. You're such a true Renaissance man that I don't even know if we could fit it all into one episode. So what I'd like to do is uh, start off on some of your, your projects and, and talk about those. But I really want to talk to you about some of your fiction because it's, you know, I don't say that lightly. It's, it's really some of the best fiction and science fiction I've read in quite a long time. And I personally feel it's up there, you know, with, with the greats in science fiction, uh, Gibson and, and, and Philip K. Dick. I hope, hope I didn't set the standard, set the bar too high for you. Um, but uh, I really do think your work, your work holds up under that, under that praise. So um, I really want to get into, you know, I've done some writing on my blog about your work and I, I've talked to you and um, it seems like, you know, your themes are, uh, I was kind of on the right track with your theme. So I want to get into that. But before we do so, I, I definitely need you to spend some time talking about these projects you're working on because they're, they're really unique. Uh, they're really, to me, a big deal. And I think that you are really one of maybe one or two forerunners for this new world of publishing. Uh, uh, self-publishing, internet publishing. And um, so we'll talk about your book. But before we even get there, you're, you're judging the Passage Prize right now. Um, and I, I talked to Yarvin about that a little bit, and he, he broke that down. I'd like you to, to tell us about it from your angle. How's that experience going? Uh, what exactly is it? And um, you know, what is the task you have before you as a judge for the fiction of the Passage Prize? Right. So the, the Passage Prize is a collaboration between uh, Lomez, that's his name on Twitter, that's the name I have for him, and uh, he's been organizing a lot of it, kind of put together the website, handling the prizes and so on, the legal side of things. And then with uh, me 
uh, Curtis Yarvin, Dr. Benjamin Braddock, and uh, Giovanni, uh, I'm sorry, Gio, Penacchetti, Penacchetti, I don't quite know how to say your name. But uh, so we're the judges and we're judging the different categories of fiction, nonfiction, poetry, and visual art. Uh, as you know, Curtis Yarvin is judging poetry. I'm judging the fiction. And, uh, you know, it's been amazing. We had a huge turnout for this, much, much more than we expected. I don't know the exact number, but I think there were close to 2,000 submissions overall. And of those, we had about 400, 430 uh, works of fiction that were submitted to the prize that I've been trying to get through. 10,000 word limit. Um, so it's, it's honestly a lot of work and I don't mind it. I, I feel that it's, uh, it's a privilege and an honor to be trusted to judge this, this contest. And I hope people will see it as a way of me giving something uh, of myself, you know, to, to this community, which I value very much. So the, the brief of the fiction is Escape from the Longhouse. And I'm judging all of the entries on how well they managed to illustrate our values and embody that theme. Nope, sorry. And how is the, the quality of the work? Are you enjoying the work? Um, you've talked to, you've made some tweets actually about, about the actual contents of the, the work you're seeing. What do you think of the prose? Yarvin had nothing but great things to say. He was surprised at how many good poems he got. Uh, obviously, there. I guess it's implied that there's going to be some bad stuff too. But are you are you pleasantly surprised? Uh, how, how are you finding both the themes and the the writing? Well, there are a lot of entries, and I think there are many people at, at many different levels of skill and also investment. And there's some stories where I can tell that people maybe just didn't put their all into the work. Unfortunately. So obviously I, I want to choose entries that are serious where someone really put a lot of care. And I think that most people did. Um, and, and there have been some really incredible ones. We have a lot of very talented writers. I've been sort of trying to go through and highlight some random passages on Twitter. if I think there's a striking line. There's a lot of stories that are really good that still won't win because there's, there's even a higher tier but what we're looking at doing is is trying to select everyone who we think has uh, has demonstrated, you know, the the talent and the effort and the understanding of what we're about. We're going to publish. I I don't know. Don't quote. Don't hold me to this. But I think we're going to publish probably fifteen, maybe even twenty, of the stories that were submitted. There, there's. Honestly, there's too many good ones to really choose, though I must choose. And as my shortlist is growing, the, uh, the considerations that inform who is going to win start to become a bit hair splitting, I think. That's good to hear though. I'm very glad because this is like the, the, one of the traditional uses and one of the traditional novelties of the internet that it crowdsources culture now. And I think there's some pretty obvious examples of that going disastrously. And in some ways, I think it's 
uh, degrading certain things about culture because there's no standards anymore. But but on the flip side, this is the this is the antithesis to that. It, this is the best of crowdsourcing. Um, so I'm really happy to have that now. In the interest of time, I'm going to move on. But anybody interested, I do want to. Uh, we talk about this quite a lot in another episode. So anybody who's interested in the Passage Prize, uh, Zero tweets about it a lot. And I spend a fair amount of time in another episode about it. So we're going to move right along to uh, another really big thing for you. Back in, what was it, November, you published your first uh, hard copy of your, of your a collection of your online stories and a collection of some of your online fiction. Um, and it's redeemable through an NFT. So is this the first time that's ever been done? And uh, what's it? What's the process been like? Maybe give us some background on that. Well, I don't know if it's the first time it's ever been done. It's one of the first times. I think uh, we can be fairly confident in that, just because the the technology is so new. And I published using Canonic.xyz's platform, which, uh, to my knowledge, is a pretty unique offering in the space in that it combines uh, self-publishing to a blockchain with this kind of uh, NFT system that really empowers the author to, uh, to continue to benefit from the aftermarket sales in perpetuity. It's a really interesting way of managing digital rights to content that you yourself have created. The other uh, book that came out right around this time, slightly after mine, I believe, but I could be wrong, was uh, James Polos, Human Forever, also published through Canonic. And, uh, you know, it's a really different model from what we're used to because this is a digital age and anyone can just go online and download a PDF or an ebook. It's, it's information is almost free. And so in order to make it not free, you have to put all these digital restrictions on it. Um, I don't really care for that. I have been on the internet long enough that I still sort of have, have that desire for information to be free. But what can never be free is a, a handmade leather bound book uh, you know, a physical artifact that, that has costs that are just associated with it one way or the other. So uh, everyone who purchased the book, the NFT, can redeem it to get one of these leather-bound editions. And to me, that's, that's what's really special is, uh, you know, hopefully the bits last forever. I think there's still, there's still a lot about the future of cryptocurrency that is to be determined. But uh, a lot of people find it, you know, very easy to trust a physical copy they can hold in their hand. And that's, that's the thing I'm, I'm really proud about, actually. Yes, well, it's, it's certainly, if not the very first, it's certainly very unique. And there was a study that came out pretty early on when, uh, after the Amazon Kindle came out. You're probably aware of this, that uh, they can see where everybody is in their book. They can, they can just look at the technology and see who's read what. And I guess the vast majority of the people who download books didn't didn't read them like some some single digit percentile read them. And I think uh, there's there's a lot of work done on this. I think people really do prefer having the uh, the hard copy in their hand. I know I personally do, too. So I'm really happy to see this happen. But at the same time, 
the book itself is sort of following the way you're publishing it is following the 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 philosophy undergirding crypto in general, which and and money really in general and and commodities, uh, and that's scarcity. And there has to be some form of scarcity to make any of these things valuable. So the way you're publishing this is you guys are sort of creating the scarcity, which is really interesting and almost might seem paradoxical at first. Uh, but because you're a zero HP Lovecraft and you have such a following, there is a huge demand even before you put this book out where all of your stories are free online, easily accessible. But uh, but there's yet there's still this demand and it's exacerbated by the scarcity of the book. So I think it's a pretty I think it's a pretty uh, a good a good plan. And it's, uh, it clearly worked. I mean, how long did it take you to sell out a couple hours? Uh, you know, it took it took almost a whole day. Uh, not quite 24 hours, I think, is, is how long it went on. But that's still pretty impressive. I mean, when you consider the, the cost of the book, which, by the way, you know, most of the revenue from it, honestly, went straight back into the, uh, the, the production cost right. of the physical artifact. Because I'm really not trying to make money here. And if I were there, I would make some very different choices. And I resisted even putting my work into a physical format for a long time, uh, partly because that's time that I have to take away from writing, time that I you know, spend editing and uh, typesetting and sourcing materials and negotiating what all that's going to look like. There are a lot of secondary concerns with the book that traditionally publishers would have handled. And some of those have been handled by Canonic, which I'm very grateful uh, to them for doing, but a lot of it I also did myself. And, uh, you know, I wanted to make it something that was beautiful inside and out. I wanted to provide some small value adds, at least for the people who bought it in a physical copy beyond just the copy itself. Little, there's little moments in the book which are outside of the stories themselves, which I hope people will find interesting and, and that they'll connect to. So, you know, I spent a few months working on that, that production of the book. And that's time I didn't spend writing. That's time I couldn't even spend really like <clears throat> working on, on other projects either. It consumed a lot of time. Well, still, I think it's uh, even without the profit being there or the, the minimal profit being there, it, it still adds to the mystique of your work. I mean, you have this whole persona with the voice modulator and the, 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 the image of HP Lovecraft being uh, surrounded by Cthulhu or some sort of Cthulhu-like creature um, as sort of the, the, the um, embodiment of your persona. So I think to have this really unprecedented, um, several things about your career, honestly, are unprecedented. And uh, you've really made yourself completely from the ground up and I think this just adds to the mystique. You know, there will be rumors of there being a book out there that some people have, but only the initiated. You know, just like there's uh, rumors of an interview that you did with Astral that is uh, floating in the ether somewhere. <laughs> but um, it's on brand, as they say. Right. Well, yeah, I didn't want to put it that way. But yes, it's perfectly on brand. I think everything that you have, you have a consistency about your, your brand. Uh, that, that I think is very specific to the digital age and to the internet age. And 
you know, I've talked to you before about other people who sort of dabbled in uh, like the dialectical relationship between literature and literary forms and, and, and the internet and how that is, you know, affecting the novel and as, as the novel is evolving. And without getting too deep into my perspective on that and how that works, I think the novel as an art form, along with many other art forms, are, is kind of floundering in the digital age and, and they're kind of stuck in the old way and it's kind of the same the same form over and over again but that form the, the, of the traditional novel has been played out it was played out a long time ago I think um, I don't know if you agree I'd, I'd be interested to hear if you agree or not and your work was the first thing I came across that I, I, I had that aha moment that okay somebody is evolving the form and the, and the, the form has stepped up uh, to meet the the changing uh, the changing medium of of digitization of all of our of all of our media, and uh, instead of just reworking the same story into the same beginning, middle, and end of the traditional novel, you've uh, you've sort of adapted it to the the world of the internet and the blogging world and and the cryptocurrency world and things like that. And that might be a good segue to start talking about the gig economy real quick now you've you've kind of laid out the the story of of what you intended with that story and how you uh, came to publish it and how it went viral uh, but i do think it's worth at least reiterating the fact that it went viral and this is another thing about your career that i consider more or less unprecedented now i can point to a couple other examples of stories that went viral a couple have come to mind immediately but those stories went viral because of some uh, controversy or some, uh, you know, they, uh, some of these stories get subjected to the woke mob and they get shared on, say, Twitter uh, to be criticized and to be torn down and to be subjected to the criteria of, uh, of the woke witch hunt to say how they, they violate uh, certain woke taboos or they violate certain taboos of, uh, of culture in general. And they don't necessarily get a lot of attention because of their merits as a story. And, um, you know, some of the stories that come to mind were, you know, canceled because they got so much negative attention. The, the author and the publisher pulled them down off the Internet, whereas you have a very different story to tell. And maybe briefly, it'd be it would probably be a good idea to you just reiterate the uh, or, or kind of revisit the experience of publishing the gig economy because if i remember correctly you told me you had like 50 followers on twitter when you published that story and that story that you put on your blog and onto twitter in maybe 2017 itself went viral on its own merits and it it, it kind of took off like wildfire um uh, in a very positive way, it was it was very well received by the people who read it. And if you could tell that story again, uh, maybe briefly, we could use that as a way into discussing your work as a whole, your fiction as a whole, I should specify. Yes, I mean, well, you you hit the major beats of it. I uh, I had done some writing before, and I think I've told you this. I've maybe mentioned this to others as well. I was very inspired by a story of uh, Murakami who was uh, reportedly just sitting at a baseball game one day and thought I could write fiction. And then he did, and he became this world-renowned novelist. And uh, I had sort of a similar experience. I tried writing little short stories before 
the gig economy, but I never really seriously applied myself and spent a lot of time like uh, sacrificing if you could. You have to sacrifice something in order to write a good story. You have to, you have to burn some of your spirit, you could say. And uh, I really put a lot of work into this story. I showed it to a few friends and they said, uh, well, you, you might really have something here, but I still didn't really believe it. You know, I was just writing for my own entertainment more than anything else. And I was thinking about a lot of the things I'd experienced online, people I'd read and interacted with. And uh, yeah, 50 followers on Twitter posted the story. This was actually before Twitter made a change to their UI. So every single like and every single uh, retweet generated its own notification. And uh, like right now, if 100 people like your tweet, you get one notification for that. It just aggregates it. But before, you get 100. And uh, this was before they made that change. So I, I was uh, writing the story for months. I finally got it to a state that I liked. And I was at the gym, I think. And uh, I had published it to my WordPress, but not tweeted the link. And I was at the gym and I was like, well, here it is. You know, have fun. And I was utterly shocked. It was like a Friday afternoon. For the next three days, I think my phone just didn't stop vibrating. I, I didn't realize. Shortly after that, I turned off the notifications. But like the phone just uh, nonstop with the notifications. And I've never had anything like that happen to me before. I'd never gotten so many notifications. It sounds so mundane when you talk about it. But the funny thing is, this was in my story as a plot point. And so I briefly considered if I had somehow you know, summon the pocket universe around myself uh, and make the plot come true for me. But I, I, don't, I don't think there's anything really special or unique about this story. I think that everyone who uses social media and has a popular tweet has had that experience on some level. Uh, you talk about it going viral and being well-received. That's true, but people also noticed my political leanings because I used to have them right in the bio. And uh, there was also that instant backlash of, oh, he had to be a neo-reactionary. Oh, he had to be uh, believed in human biodiversity. What a horrible person. I'm not going to share this. I'm not going to retweet this. So as soon as people figured that out, I think it could have gone a lot bigger if it hadn't been for that. Uh, but I was... That was never a question for me. That was never something I was going to suppress. Well, fair warning. Uh, the rest of this conversation, what lies ahead is two literary nerds who are about to get really deep into the literary aspects of this because I'm just, I, I, I discovered your work, I guess it was two years ago and I've been uh, so enamored by it and, and not just the work itself, but your approach to the situation and the way you you everything you do is meticulously laid out that I'm still kind of I'm still kind of overwhelmed with how everything you've done has been so pre-thought out and it's all it's all works it, it all works and in, in my opinion it all works I'd be interested to hear some negative feedback you've got about some of the questions I have because 
because some of the things you do are you you have you, each of your big stories uh has has a new novelty that you incorporate into the way text appears on the internet uh, the way text appears in such a way that is only possible on the internet um and i have to think that you get some detractors for that and we'll get specific in a second about what those details or those differences or those novelties are i have to assume some folks are not it's not well received by some readers and i also have to wonder because the stories themselves are so good that I suspect maybe some people don't like the novelty of the way you present your stories, but they like the stories enough so they push through it. I personally, it works on me, the novelties. And, you know, I'm speaking as if everyone listening is familiar with your fiction. So let's get into the details first. And then I'd like to hear about the thought process going into it and the, how it's received. Um, again, for me going in, I'm obviously I'm an unabashed fan of your work. So, so that should be clear. Um, <clears throat> pardon me. So the first novelty I noticed with the gig economy, the one that really jumps out is that you structured it like a blog in certain ways. You, you have like faux blog posts interspersed in throughout the text and each, excuse me, they're not even blog posts, they're tweets actually. But I said blog posts because if you read a blog, uh, that's what they do. They, they'll, they'll, they'll talk on the blog about, uh, state of affairs and then there'll be a, a picture of a tweet and all the big blogs from back in the day from the, the golden age of blogging would do this um they would have they would have a tweet embedded in the text and also if you read like even on newspapers now they do the same exact thing where a traditional newspaper will just be a picture with a wall of text but uh, now a news article online very often especially in like uh news sources that only exist online they'll have a tweet embedded right into the text and you do that with the gig economy. And that I, I noticed immediately that what you were doing and I thought it was brilliant. Um, so can you can you maybe uh, lay that out a little bit more for listeners who haven't read that story? Uh, maybe talk about the thought process going into it and um, how it was received. Well, a lot of people thought the gig economy was true at first. Like by the, by the last, by the third act, I think they realized it's not. But especially the beginning, the first maybe uh, half of the story is written like a think piece, you could say. And it sort of borrows a little bit from maybe the format of someone like Slate Star Codex. The, uh, it was played straight. It was played matter of fact. I actually never thought anyone would mistake it for truth, but maybe just because of the, the landscape of cryptocurrency at the time, I guess it felt very possible. Like there were no winks or nods per se, nothing to take it off. So a lot of people thought, oh, this is a true story. And then as it gets increasingly surreal and maybe magical, they start to learn. They start to realize, oh no, I've been had. And a lot of people actually were unhappy with that. They were like, oh, you, I can't believe you tricked me, but it's a good, Mostly, it's a, it's a good way of feeling tricked. It's a pleasant surprise. The, the idea of the found media using screenshots of a phone, like an iPhone, uh, iMessage, or tweets, 4chan posts, Reddit posts, and so on, it just felt very natural to me. Part of it was that whenever I'm writing any kind of a longer story, I 
I hesitate to use this word, but I almost make what you could call a mood board. I grab a lot of quotations and secondary sources that inspire me and that I want to pull into the work. So that could be lines from philosophers or uh, sentences from books that I like, or especially in the case of the gig economy tweets. Most, not all, but most of the tweets that appeared there were real tweets that I saw in 2016 and maybe part of 2017. And I scrubbed them of their branding. I didn't really attribute them. Ultimately, I chose to put them in because I, I wanted to work those ideas into the text. And some of them were easier to just include as tweets rather than to include, rather than to try to, to rewrite them or weave them into the main narrative flow. So they serve to sort of break it up. This is another thing. And I, I tell everyone this when I give them writing advice, if they ask, is that when you write anything now, if you write an article or even a tweet or a novel, whatever it is, a short story, you are competing with every other thing in the entire world for people's attention. And there's very little reason for them to give it to you. Whether, you know, in, in the course of trying to read a blog post, I probably switch to Twitter three or four times and check the tweets. And if you're reading a book, you're not only competing with every other book ever written, you're also competing with every blog post, every Twitter account, every video on Instagram, every, every TikTok e-girl shaking her ass. Like to, to wrangle someone's mind and their eyeballs for even half an hour to read something that you've written is really a Herculean undertaking these days. And so one thought that I had with the gig economy was that if I mixed a bunch of tweets, fake tweets still into the text, then I could sort of short circuit the desire to go and check your social media feeds. My thought was in the course of reading this text, right at the time when your brain tells you, when you're, you, you think, oh, I could go check another dopamine source. Instead, I'm just gonna give you a simulation of that experience right in line so that the instinct is hopefully subverted and you stay and you keep reading the text instead of switching away and getting pulled into whatever vortex of, of social media depravity. But it still doesn't quite work because when you go into your Twitter feed or, or whatever Instagram feed, whatever media, it, it's kind of about you. You know what I mean? Like you are the protagonist in your own text that is your social media feed. And I don't think until maybe AI advances quite a bit, we can even begin to approximate that, uh, that dynamic. So, yes. yeah, does that answer your question? Not only does it answer my question, it, it elaborated on what I was saying about how everything you've done is uh, meticulously thought out beforehand and, and delivered. Uh, you have this intention for what you're doing. Um, and it's a perfect segue into God-shaped hole. I really don't, there's a lot more about the gig economy that I, I plan to talk to you about, but you just, you gave me the perfect opening to bring up God-shaped hole because the novelty, the, the internet novelty that you bring into the text for God-shaped hole is the hyperlink. Um, and you also, if I remember correctly, you also had ads, you had advertisements interspersed through the story, fictional advertisements for things that only exist in world for that story. 
but it's so tied into what you just said that maybe you can you can move on to um, explaining that to us. The in the different color uh, texts are supposed to represent a hyperlink, which you told me you lifted or were inspired by the book House of Leaves. Which, uh, well, I'll let you. Yeah. So House of Leaves did a version of this gimmick. And I don't think House of Leaves is a great book. I think it's an okay book. Uh, it's a bit of David Foster Wallace. It's a bit of Borges. But it's both of those things sort of put in a blender with Chuck Palahniuk. And it's less than the sum of its parts. Or you could say it drags everything down to the level of Chuck Palahniuk. That's my personal interpretation. Some, I suppose if we were being really charitable, we might, instead of Chuck Palahniuk, we might try to say Bukowski, but I, I don't think I would be that generous. Uh, anyway, so throughout that book, he has the word house, and the house is one of the characters, if you like, in the House of Leaves. It's a house that is haunted, it has these bizarre spatial qualities to it that it can grow and stretch and the floor can fall away. It has secret passages. It's bigger inside than outside. And the way that the exposition of these, these impossible topologies is done is very interesting. I think the best part of the book. Uh, but one of the things he does is wherever the word house appears, he printed it in blue ink. And I think that he also has the word Minotaur in there in red ink maybe once, and there's something in purple as well. But in my opinion, he didn't take it nearly far enough. He said that the blue was supposed to be evocative of a hyperlink, but it's not a link you can click on because it's a physical book. And I thought there was a lot more potential to embed semantic meaning into color. And I wanted to explore other ways to do that. So in my opinion, I borrowed that idea, but I also think I refined it and elevated it, I hope. Some people tell me there's a moment in God-shaped hole where text that's in red is supposed to indicate an unauthorized or maybe a rogue uh, actor, like an artificial intelligence that's malicious. And so there's a moment in the book when all of a sudden one of the characters' names appears in red and people said, they were very surprised that just that shift in color could evoke this sense of anxiety or fear. And so I was very, very pleased uh, that that device was effective. Yes, I'm so interested in the mechanics of writing and the, and the, and the, the, pre, the way uh, a text is presented that I didn't actually pick up on that, but you did tell me that afterwards and I saw how that played in. But um, you mentioned David Foster Wallace and several other other authors, so that brings up a, a question or just a remark that I have that relates equally to both the gig economy and God-shaped hole, which is that uh, the well, I guess the the Jamesonian um, uh, pastiche, the, the Jamesonian perspective that postmodern art is pastiche. It's like a, a cob job or a slapdash putting together of different art forms and different different uh, content from the past and kind of remolding it into uh, a sort of a hastily seeming narrative, uh, hastily thrown together, I mean to say narrative, that doesn't have the narrative continuity uh, of, of works of the past from, from 
from modern, you know, eras before postmodernism. And, you you know, examples abound of, of the narrative being chopped up in one way or another. Uh, Finnegan's Wake is kind of the go-to example where this all supposedly begins. Uh, but I like, I like to talk about Infinite Jest, mainly because I was able to read that one. I couldn't make it through Finnegan's Wake. Um, but I also know that, that Foster, David Foster Wallace is an inspiration to you. And uh, one of the things he observes is that uh, commercials serve to cut the narrative up and chop the narrative up of a, of a television show. And the commercials are inserted into the narrative in such a way that it sort of brings you the subject out of your experience of falling into a story uh, and then kind of scrambles your brain and reorients you to, to this distraction, really. And then you have to reprogram, you have to like uh, reprogram your brain to get back into the narrative. And I think David, Fo and he wrote Infinite Jest in a way to try to evoke that. So in one way, it has this pastiche of this uh, uh, non-linear narrative where the where time is uh, all scrambled. So that serves to kind of break up, break you out of the flow. Uh, but, but, but even more than that, he has the footnotes and he says the reason he puts the footnotes in there is to take you out of the narrative and, and kind of distract you and bring you into some other thing. And all of a sudden your brain has to be focusing on what the footnote is about. And he said that's supposed to sort of be evocative of the experience of having the narrative chopped up uh, in this, in this uh, televisual world by commercials. And I think the hyperlinks in, on a blog or the advertisements on a newspaper story, uh, an online news story, uh, it's doing the same exact thing. And then you talk about distraction and it it's, has a similar effect, right? Uh, to sit there and read a novel now while your phone is buzzing and while your email is uh, you know, popping up on your screen and your computer is dinging that you got some sort of notification, all of that stuff serves to draw you out of the narrative. And I think in order to recreate that in the structure of your story, uh, I think that was a, a pretty deft and bold move. And I think that it was, it's absolutely necessary to evolve the form around that state of affairs. And I think you've done so quite well. Um, and the last thing I'll say on that before I make this a question is um, the way you bring in other writers, right? Because I, I would say three writers are all over your work, especially the gig economy. And, you know, they always say, right, an artist's first product is him trying to get out from underneath uh, his inspirations and um, they find their own voice. And I think your inspirations are kind of written purposely by you. You, you, you went out of your way, it seems, to do this all over the gig economy. Uh, Borges, Lovecraft, and Wallace. And then one that I didn't see until you told me was Ted Chiang. And then God Shaped Hole is much more your own voice and, and much less uh, bringing in uh, you know, texts and examples and references to all these other writers. Um, well, so maybe there is no question there, but I would like you to, to reflect on that a little bit. I know we're both big fans of David Foster Wallace and Infinite Jest. Yeah, Wallace is, was a hugely influential writer for me. I, I think that's abundantly obvious. Um, and I read pretty much everything he ever published. Uh, the only thing I didn't read was his co-authored book, essay called Signifying Rap, which I skimmed a little bit of, but it was just, it was dated before it was written. Like imagine trying to write a book about state of Twitter 
in a particular moment. You just couldn't even do it. And in a way, hip hop is, or pop music in general, is sort of the same. It's like all of these, if you if you follow pop music, which I don't, but I have a little bit in the past, it's it's constantly streaming new content and it's all just inane and irrelevant, but it has all these little moments, much like our Twitter feeds. There's something about pop music and Twitter that are very similarly structured. And so for him to sit down and write a book analyzing the themes in all of these hip hop songs, it'd be like writing a book analyzing all the tweets written in a, in a you know, two year period or something, which we often joke about. Like imagine a book about the tweets that were written in 2015 and 2016. It's, it's, a, it's almost a Borgesian concept uh, to, to think about it. But yeah, I, I discovered his work in high school, actually. And Infinite Jest was the first thing I read by him. Loved it. Uh, I People say you should read it with two bookmarks. And I sort of arrived at that idea without anyone telling me. Like, it just felt very obvious. Like, of course, you need two bookmarks. So that you I, I too, read it with it. two bookmarks. Yeah, you, you need to. You need to do it. Because otherwise, finding the footnotes is, is quite tedious. Uh, but I loved it. So I said, oh, there has to be more. And so I read The Broom of the System. I read The Girl with Curious Hair. I read uh, Brief Interviews with Hideous Men, obviously. But all of it. I bought all of them. I read all of them. And uh, I think, I don't know where this idea came from, but someone, I've, I've heard this idea that much of the tone of the blogosphere, that's a cursive word that I hate using and knowing, but much of the tone of it, especially in say maybe 2010 to 2013, came, was, was derivative of Wallace's writing style, that sort of painful candor that he would uh, use in his writing. I'm not saying he was the first person to write that way or the only person to write that way, but you could see it kind of diffusing down through the blogs, basically all the blogs that were, that were written at that time. Everyone would have this kind of conversational television inspired irony, television inspired irony combined with this kind of painful candor. I think, uh, People don't even realize a lot of the time what literary influence has trickled down and, and shaped their writing. Well, I think I said that to you. I don't know if I'm the first person to ever say that to you, but I read uh, Unqualified Reservations. I don't know, maybe it was right after Trump was elected. Um, I was hearing all this new terminology and I found out that it came from that. So I started reading it. And the first thing that struck me was that he sounded like David Foster Wallace. Uh, I've had people disagree with me on that. I'd like to ask him if I ever get the chance to have him back yeah, I was, was going to say, did you talk, did you happen to ask him if he was a fan of Wallace? I'd be curious about that. But no, if you really want to see the roots of, of Moldbug's literary style, and this isn't so true of, of Grey Mirror, but it's, it's all over unqualified reservations, you should actually read some of Thomas Carlyle which he alludes to as well. And I think that the Carlylean style is very evident in a lot of Yardin's writing. Well, that's good to know. Um, I, I really just meant the conversational tone and the fact that he kind of uh, is long-winded, but I mean that in a 
good way because that's, that's true of Carlisle also. Is it so. okay? Well, I know Carlisle's a big. Inf- no, unfortunately, I couldn't ask Yarvin that, but maybe he'll get wind of this interview and he'll he'll answer the question in some form or another. Either way, and uh, I won't make this a spurg about David Foster Wallace, but hopefully we can we can spend a lot more time on him. Last thing I'll say is I consider that book to be a turning point in literature, and I consider everything. I consider that a watershed moment in America in the American novel and the novel in general and anything that came afterwards that wasn't somehow influenced by it or somehow changed by the way he wrote and the insights he has onto the, the form of literature. And the, like I said before, dialectical conversation between literature and televisual media and digital media, um, they're, they're, they're kind of stagnating and writing in an old form, in my opinion, and people who sort of uh, build on that are, are evolving the style. Now, the one last thing I want, I'd like to, to close the interview discussing Don't Make Me Think, because as far as I know, you haven't spent too much time discussing that in other interviews, and I think it, I think it deserves to be. Um, that story got released like right before the book came out. So um, I think it kind of got overshadowed in the, in the discourse about your work because that was such a big deal, the publishing of that book. So maybe we can, uh, we can finish on that story. But the last thing I want to say about the other two stories, though, is that you have this kind of side story, uh, maybe you could call it a digression in the gig economy about him, about this group of people uh, that he discovers online who find these old books and they sort of revive and try to try to uh, 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 keep, keep, save and preserve these old books for antiquity because, uh, you, know, you know, books are going away. Books are disappearing. Really, all, all hard media is going away. And even what we're talking about I, with your book, it's like it's like a novelty and it's like something you have to conscientiously put time and effort into because uh, that is no longer like the primary delivery device for narrative anymore. At least liter- written narrative is is the actual physical copy of a book. Um, so it's it's quite interesting the way you explore that theme in the gig economy. And now you're sort of uh, making it real. So um, I'd like you to maybe talk about that part of the big gig economy. That was one of my favorite parts of that whole story. And then um, where you got the inf- uh, not the information, the inspiration to publish your book this way, because it actually, as far as I know, from what you told me, comes from something Curtis Yarvin said uh, about about a book coming out of uh, what we'll call your sphere, the, the neo-reactionary sphere, which is really an online movement. Um, so maybe we can, uh, we can move on from these two stories with you uh, t- uh, discussing that a little bit with us. Yes, so there was an essay that I think was published in the American Mind uh, by uh, Curtis Yarvin about Bronze Age mindset, where he talked about he lamented that this book, this landmark book, really, Bronze Age Mindset, was published so inexpensively as a print-on-demand, self-published thing through Amazon. And he said that, really, for a book like that, a book of such power, it should have been, you know, each copy should be handwritten by scribes on, like, vellum or something like that, and, and bound in like rich animal hides and hand delivered. I, I don't remember the exact way he said it, but he said, you know, it should be something that's rare and and uh, and exquisite. And so I thought, well, yes, it should. It should be that way. In fact, 
and uh, that's so so when canonic reached out to me they said you know we can deliver this for you i didn't even ask them uh they but their their main guy he said look we can we can do this we can produce something that's rare and something that's beautiful and grand and so i i was immediately interested in that project and uh yeah that, that's that's how so, it happened it sounds like there are creatures I'm sorry, screeching uh, and banging on the walls from another dimension, like in some sort of Lovecraftian story. They're, they're trying to get out and you're holding them back just in long enough to get this interview done. My, unfortunately, my next door neighbors have quite a few construction workers next door and they're doing something to the, the front of the house but i like your version of the story yeah better. me too me too and if i were the real lovecraft i would probably tell you that those construction workers are in fact eldritch horrors of uh of some hideous parentage no doubt certainly okay well you know um in the interest of giving don't make me think it's it's due because it, it really does deserve to be discussed at length um Anyone who's not read Gig Economy and God-Shaped Hole, I implore you to do so immediately. Um, and, and you'll see what I mean about uh, this discovery of these old books um, and how it kind of resembles the publishing of Zero's first, first copy. Uh, so don't make me think. Uh, that story also has a novelty uh, drawn from the internet and interspersed throughout the text. And this time it's the emoji. And I have to assume that this was the most difficult uh, novelty for your readers to to overcome and I think it's good that you incorporated this novelty once you had your own following because you had to do quite a lot of work and when I said before about you know reprogramming your brain to be drawn out of the narrative and watch a bunch of cartoons commercials excuse me and go back into it nowhere is that more true than in this story um, and I really felt like I had to re uh uh, program my brain a certain way to incorporate the emojis into the text. So uh, please uh, elaborate on the thought process behind that and kind of tell the readers unfamiliar what, what exactly I'm talking about. Yes. So for that story, I made a choice and I knew it was going to be an unpopular choice and I knew it was one that would limit the readership of the story. But I chose to do it anyway because I believed in the idea, which was that uh, I wanted to integrate, it sounds so pretentious every time I say this, but I wanted to integrate multiple sensory modalities into a single text. And the emoji is ideographic. It's actually something that's a little bit more like Chinese than like English. And so one of the themes in the story is this kind of Sino-futuristic idea not that it's holding up china and exalting it as some path for the for the future but more meditating on and lamenting that as china gains more technological and economic power they begin to encroach into the u.s in a variety of ways and this if you've lived in the bay area or the west coast at all really you can or, or vancouver canada for that matter, you can see this immediately how signified the culture has become in those West Coast cities. So 
I thought it was interesting, both as an exploration of this kind of Sino-futurism uh, and also as an exploration of what Neuralink, that is in-brain implants, uh, would be like uh, for, for a, a citizen of the future. So that I may not have explained myself well there, right there. There's, there's, a lot, there's a lot to unpack, as they say. So I imagine that if we all had brain implants, it would be sort of like having smartphones, except that your senses would all be very scrambled. That is, you would see things, you'd have hallucinations, visual, auditory, that were controlled by computers. We'd perhaps be able to render images directly into your brain. So the idea that normally you're used to just reading text, but I will pepper it with a new invented emoji language <clears throat> for you to kind of reconcile both with that ideographic paradigm and the more linear textual paradigm that you know, I was hoping, I knew it would make it difficult to read, but I was hoping it would kind of create this split mind and this sensation of, of altered consciousness that I expect that you might get from brain implants. But at the same time, this is an altered consciousness that is probably very familiar to anyone who can read Chinese. So hopefully that, that explains it without sounding too pretentious. No, not, not only does it explain it, but my read on the story uh, sort of um, kind of helps, helps the, the listener see what I mean about how what you're doing is really uh, the future of literature, because it's, there's multiple layers to what's going on. It's, and it sounds so <laughs> trite to say multiple layers, but it, it's true, though, because uh, my read of the story, my, my read of the use of the emojis, rather, is that uh, you say it's the encroaching of uh, uh, Asian you know, lifestyle onto American. I see it as an encroaching of the digital medium onto like the literary medium so that uh, uh, up until now, reading has always been, you know, because looking at a bunch of hieroglyphics on a wall isn't exactly the same thing as holding a scroll of, as you said, venom, excuse me, vellum, or or, a, or an actual book and flipping through the pages, uh, and and then you compare those two things to holding a, a screen and scrolling, uh, you know, on on a touch screen. They're all very different sensory experiences that really don't immediately have any relation of one to another and that uh that that the, the textual the experience of experiencing the text and falling into the story is really unique to holding the book in your hand and and reading through um you know this is McLuhan's Gutenberg galaxy it uh it it trains your brain in a specific way that is the most conducive to uh taking yourself through a narrative um, at least a, 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 a narrative that you're reading, as opposed to uh, hieroglyphics or pictures or um, a pictographic language. It's a different uh, brain experience, as you say. But the way I saw it was that the the internet and the the, the uh, digitized uh, screen uh, on computers is yet a new experience of reading and a new experience of narrative that is different that is overtaking the old way and it's less literary and it's much more like a, a pre-literate way of absorbing a story or absorbing a narrative by by viewing you know the pictographs 
So to me, the encroachment on the narrative and the linear text of the pictures was a good way for you. And I, I don't know, did you do this on purpose? It was a good way for you to evoke the overtaking of that form of narrative by this new digitized form of narrative. Uh, I, I mean, in a, in a sense, I don't think I quite thought of it the way that you describe it, but yes, it, it is about one thing replacing another. I mean, that's a theme that you can find sort of throughout the book. Uh, I don't care about spoilers and I don't think okay. anyone should, frankly, like if the only thing a story has going for it is a surprise, then it's probably not that good of a story. Uh, so, you know, in, in the course of the narrative, the main character branch has his mind overtaken by this kind of digital lich, this, uh, this person who has attempted to transform himself into software by overwriting the memories of other people. Uh, I was inspired in part for that story by uh, a short by Greg Egan and I apologize, I've forgotten the name of it, but it deals with this exact question where uh, one man overwrites all of his memories with the memories of another person. And then the story ends on the question of who this new person really is. Is it the person, is it the original, or is it the person whose memories were overwritten uh, into his mind? It's not a particularly deep question, I don't think, but it's, it's an intriguing setup for a story. So I borrowed the major beats of the plot from a story by Borges, but I rearranged them around this premise from Greg Egan. And, you know, David Foster Wallace says, which is pretty much just postmodernism 101, that a book is built out of other books and so I'm always very conscious of which books I'm using to build my stories. I think if you aren't conscious of it, you're still going to do it, but then it'll be worse. Then you just won't know what your materials are. I'd much rather be very explicit with myself and say, these are the, these are the pieces, these are the building blocks I'm going to use to assemble the story. And that way I don't miss anything. And I know where I'm coming from. Yeah, part of the reason I think you succeed is because you have a self-awareness of this pastiche that I, I evoked before. Um, um, the pastiche of uh, putting different stories from the past together to kind of uh, make this Frankenstein's monster of a new story. And uh, we have like a hyper version of that with like the the Marvel movies. Well, they're not just Marvel movies, but like all the superhero movies, like the reboot and the reboot and the reboot. It's like... Uh, it, 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 it's like the narrative itself is just totally secondary and the characters are just kind of like sewn together into different situations. And it's, it's this sort of, um, uh, well, like am shambling beast of, of a story and it's not a new, you know, novel insight or, 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 or story, um, as, as it should be. So I think your self-awareness that you, you are, um, you know, you name, for example, in the gig economy, you call uh, one of these one of these programs the Aleph, which is a, a Borges story. Uh, what was the what was the uh, Borges story that inspired? Don't make me think. Uh, it was from the collection called Brody's Report, and I I actually mentioned this explicitly. I think in the thread where I wrote it, it was uh, called the Dead Man, 
which uh, is a story about uh, a, a man who becomes a gangster and he goes and he tries to uh, join these gauchos. Every every Borges story has gauchos in it, uh, but he he joins these these gauchos and he becomes a gangster and he wants to replace basically the the kingpin. He thinks that he's more worthy and a better fighter and so on. So he covets everything that this uh, sort of outlaw has, his women, his horses, his men, his, his lands and estates and everything. And he tries to hatch a plan to kill him and take them. But the whole time in the reversal of the, like at the end of the story, there's a reversal. And it's understood that the whole time the outlaw knew what he was planning and had played him for a fool and allowed him to think that he was winning and overtaking him. But it, the men were always loyal. And uh, they were just playing along and mocking him. And in the end, he kills the man. So I borrowed very much from the structure of that story for Don't Make Me Think. But I set it in Silicon Valley. I made it technological. I borrowed some plot points from Greg Egan. I forget who said this and I worry that it might have been Loco de Gallus who gave me this idea but Borges was really trying to write the thousand and one Arabian Nights and set them in his hometown of Buenos Aires and in a way I am taking the stories of Borges and trying to set them in Silicon Valley. Well, you've done an excellent job. And now that you explain that story, which I didn't recognize the title of, but when you explain the plot, I do remember that story now. Um, yes, that that is. It's like a retelling of that. You've done an excellent, excellent job of that. And uh, I guess one other thing to point out that that kind of makes this a hypermodern story, too, is that the way the neural link, uh, the effect it has on the, the, the main story's brain and the visions it gives him as well as the the interruptions into the narrator, uh, excuse me, the narrative, the way everything is sort of um, turned into this kaleidoscope, as opposed to your 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 standard beginning, middle, and end, is uh, it's like in, it's like unto psychedelic use, and you're not unaware of that, of course, because the abbreviation for "Don't Make Me Think" is DMMT, yes, small M. So uh, maybe uh, maybe we can uh, bring the discussion to a close for now because I have to have you back. We need to talk much more about Wallace and, and your stories and um, bring the discussion to a close for now by uh, talking about that. Why did you feel that was necessary to incorporate uh, now into, um, because there, there's, a, there's been a resurgence of psychedelic use in Silicon Valley, hasn't there? So I'm told, yes. I'm personally not a psychedelics enjoyer. I have, uh, I have dabbled with them in the past, satisfied my curiosity for them, but I do not personally believe that, that revelation or enlightenment lies therein. Uh, so yes, there is a DMT motif in the story as well. And partly this is inspired by having read a number of trip reports on uh, Arrowhead. Yeah, I like that. I like that website. I've spent a lot yeah. of time there. I mean, it's fascinating stuff. I also was really inspired by a thread by, well, he used to go by Owen Cyclops now. No, uh, he goes by Owen Broad. Sorry, he used to go by Owen Cyclops. Now I think he goes by Owen Broadcast. 
but he's a really old school poster who's been on the internet for a million years. And he has a really, really long thread in which he relates DMT elves, aliens, Bigfoot, and uh, like those lost in a forest type of ex-paranormal stories. And he, oh, and of course, the works of Seraphim Rose and Orthodoxy and the Religion of the Future and explains this idea that the DMTLs are demons. And this is like straight out of Alex Jones also, but he doesn't really mention Alex Jones in the thread. And so I was really interested in the idea. There was also a tweet by, uh, what's his name, Benedict, uh, you know, this Desnat sort of guy. Uh, who I'm a huge fan of on Twitter. Oh, yeah. He's the one who had his tweet read on uh, Tucker Carlson, isn't he? He was he was one of them, one of the few in that club, yes. One of the first. I think so. Yeah, first one I know of. And uh, he had a tweet. His debut thread to Twitter was like 100 pieces of advice that he learned in business school. But they were all ridiculous. Most of them were not, obviously, things you learn in business school. Some really great ones. And he said that... Uh, the Silicon Valley sort of tech workers are enthralled to the DMT elves, uh, that they're, that the DMT elves are, are making, remaking Silicon Valley tech workers in their image, turning them into joyless, sexless, novelty obsessed. I don't recall exactly the wording. His tweet was good. My, my attempt to tell you about it was bad, but, uh, you know, there's a confluence of people talking about and, and working around this idea that DMT is a demonic influence that evil spirits get into your brain. I don't know if that's true or not, but it makes for good fiction. Well, anyone who's familiar with my Twitter page knows that I have made the claim many times that the internet and technology in general uh, also helps demons get into your brain and infect you. So I'm sure there's multiple ways in that we always have to be wary of. Now, you're mentioning all these uh, – Owen Broadcast is one of the most creative people on all Twitter, in my opinion. But uh, I didn't know that about your story, so that's that's good. That actually kind of uh, kind of fills out my interpretation of the story uh, and, my, and my response to it. Um, so – but as you're talking and thinking about how, you know, this whole crowdsourcing thing I was talking about, like, you know, back in, like, the 70s, right, there was all these pamphlets being put out in, like, the Bay Area – and Robert Anton Wilson and Philip K. Dick and, and other guys, uh, Bukowski, you mentioned, uh, were there. Well, he was in L.A., but uh, a lot of his readership was up in the Bay Area. Uh, they were putting out all these pamphlets about all these crazy ideas and these this crazy syncretism of them mixing like the occult with with religion and conspiracy theories all mixed together. And if you could get your hands on any of that stuff now, it's it makes for fascinating reading. But it was this small pocket of super creative people um putting out like really wild stuff that would never really make it make it off the chopping board or, or, or through the editorial uh 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 the the editorial uh gaze of say a major publisher or a book publisher and you'd have to get them as, as sort of for free back then and some of them have made their way and survived in, to posterity and it's this really uh wild time of, of creative uh, thought. And I think Twitter and the internet in general, especially like the Chan boards has really made this, uh, well, go viral. Um, and you have people just 
with your wild, crazy imaginations, just like spewing these ideas out. Like you were talking about the, the DMT elves, like uh, uh, influencing Silicon Valley and things like that. And you could never find this in a book. It wouldn't make it through publication. And even if it did, it may, may not even translate to like a long form novel or anything like that. So, so the internet really is opening up like these new avenues to creativity and literature. So it's good to see you. You're kind of like, I consider you like the avatar of that. You're the biggest account that does things like that. You don't really put your wild stuff out on your tweet threads. Your, your wild stuff is in your fiction. But um, man, you, could, you can find some stuff on Twitter that is just like, you never heard anyone who has an idea like that before. And you'll never find it anywhere else except for on some place like Twitter and, and, and the Chan boards. Um, but we're going to have to draw to a close for the moment. Um, but I'd like you, you know, as I alluded to earlier, we had an interview that uh, I lost the first half. So I'm going to tack the second half of that interview onto this, and this will be a two-part discussion. Uh, maybe you can give us a very brief segue into that. We talk about your essay, Landline Stories in a Smartphone World, which was published in Asylum Magazine and also on your blog. Um, just tell us what Asylum Magazine is uh, real quick and uh, what it was like working with them. Uh, yeah, so that, well, my audio good? Go ahead. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, the, I worked with uh, this guy. I mean, the nice thing about Twitter collaboration is it's all pretty much a non to a non. And uh, so someone will just reach out to you and say, hey, I'm putting together a paper or a, a zine. Would you like to submit something? And it was, I, I really like this guy. His, his account name is The Pierre in Spring. He's done two issues of Asylum Mag so far. It has great production values. He does the typesetting. He mixes in some like right-wing art from good artists in our group, in our sphere on Twitter. And he's had, uh, all the people that I think, not all the people that are worth reading, but he's had many of the people who are worth reading uh, submit content. So I think he's doing a really great thing. It's kind of slow, it's long form. Each issue takes time and care and he really tries to solicit high quality uh, pieces for it. So I would, I would definitely recommend it. Like I think everything he's published has been, has been worth your time. Yeah, I love that you called it a zine. Absolutely love it because that totally evokes this era that I was talking about, uh, about the self-publishing people uh, putting out their pamphlets and stuff back then. Uh, this is like a, re a rebirth of that uh, creativity. I'm just, I mean, man, that's a huge reason why I'm doing this podcast because I want to get in on this and I want to at least give people who are doing these things a platform to kind of talk about their work because it's really where, this is really where, I mean, I've been paying attention to this stuff for you know my whole life. And this is really where the creativity is happening now. Everything else you read, I'm, I'm telling you, anything that's going to have a, a, a front display on at, at like Barnes and Noble that isn't just total like uh, ideological, you know, memoirs of a politician or just like almost like admitted dreck, like a James Patterson novel. Uh, anything else that tries to sell itself as literature, as soon as you pick it up and read it, you, you can just tell it's been it's been uh, laundered through at least one if not multiple uh writing workshops to try to water it down and then it's gone through the the editorial phase and by the time it gets to your hands there's like 
it's just this this polished sort of uh you know piece of work that that uh, that has no no life to it it has no spirit to it so that's why I, that's why i'm so excited about the the publishing work and the, just the obscure people who post anonymously on on Twitter and elsewhere. And the last thing I want to ask you, um, you know, any parting thoughts you want to leave with us would be appreciated. I'm going to be putting this out as one of my first, probably my, probably I'm going to put this out as my second episode. Um, so uh, any parting thoughts or, or words you want to say? And then also, if you'd like to say anything about another piece of fiction, the next piece of fiction you, you, you either have started or maybe it's starting to coalesce in your mind. Uh, I'm sure everyone would love to hear about that. Regarding my next fiction, I don't like to talk about it too much because I feel that if I give it any air prior to writing it, it might sap the energy that I would put into it. But as I've been reading through all of the passage prize entries, I have had some ideas of my own, which are not taken from any of the stories I've read, but maybe as a kind of response to the stories that I have read. Uh, I do think I have a new piece in mind, something that I really want to write. So I'm looking forward to finishing the judging process and getting started on that. That's exciting to hear. That's absolutely yeah. exciting to hear. And I'm glad, I, I bet that the people who submitted their works are happy to hear that too. You know, I really hope that I'm giving them all of them a, uh, a fair shake. There are some really cool stories, which I haven't talked about too much, uh, that I'm excited to share with everyone. As, as soon as we come through the other side of this. And then my final parting thought, I just discovered this actually while we were talking because someone sent me a tweet. And it is that bronze age mindset is an anagram of magnetized bonus. And this <laughs> to me feels Kabbalistically significant. So I want everyone to know that that is the fact and to maybe do the gematria, you could learn something. This absolutely must have been intentional. This is an esoteric discovery of uh, a hidden message that, that I'm sure he put in there for his acolytes yes. to uncover. And how, how many more must there be? All it right. Well, discovery of great power. Yes. Yes. Thank you so much for sharing that. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, uh, this is part one. Part two will be our discussion of landline stories in a smartphone world. And I sure hope that as this, uh, you know, hopefully this podcast takes off, you have uh, graced me with giving me one of my first interviews ever and one of my first episodes ever. I hope if, if we uh, were able to do this into perpetuity, you'll come back many times because I don't think the conversation will ever end, especially as long as you keep writing. Okay. Well, uh, come back in the second half. And uh, until then, thanks for joining us.
Okay, welcome back. Thank you again for joining us. Uh, again, we are speaking with Zero HP Lovecraft, and we are now going to spend the rest of the show discussing your work, uh, Seraphim Rose and the Occult Stack. Remind me where that was published, and uh, give us a synopsis of the, of the essay. Yes, so that essay was published in Asylum magazine, uh, which I think I mentioned in part one, was... Uh, it has only had two issues so far. It's a really highly curated and high production value uh, dissident mag. It's some really cool voices. A lot of my friends have been published there as well. And it was definitely an honor to have my essay appear in their second issue. So the essay, like I said, uh, fell out of my sort of, in, in my book, They Have No Deepness of Earth, the stories, are all bookended by short essays that talk about the story and about my thoughts while writing them or what I, how I think about it or what I hope it means. And there's some really nice little essays in there which I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, people reading them and, those, and, and finding some purchase. But when I was writing that, I read a couple of books to sort of fill my head and get the right ideas. Uh, to put there. And one of the books I read was uh, Seraphim Rose's Orthodoxy and the Religion of the Future. Now, this book has a pretty famous chapter in it where he talks about science fiction. And what he discusses, he discusses a few things. He talks about Star Trek. He talks about, um, you know, some of the early science fiction writers, people like H.G. Wells. And he also compares a lot of the themes and ideas in those science fiction works to stories of the lives of orthodox saints, which presumably being an orthodox monk, he must have studied quite extensively. So it's interesting to see some of the parallels uh, to some of these stories of the occult. And I was really interested in that, so I did a little more reading, and I cribbed from his work quite a bit to notice these set of occult themes that appear in a lot of science fiction. And uh, I don't have the list in front of me, but they include things like ambition to fly, the ability to dematerialize and rematerialize, the ability to conjure images and materials, uh, the ability to communicate telepathically, uh, the ability to possess a body and take control of it. And I think uh, high speed travel, religion. this part was one of them. Yeah. Yes, yes. And a religion that's beyond all, uh, or a philosophy that's beyond all religions. There's a few more, but you look at this list and you can see not only all of these ideas are present in science fiction, you can also see them in a lot of them in modern technology. So many of the ambitions that uh, Seraphim Rose defined as a cult are in fact reality and mundane reality. We all have, as I've stated many times, telepathy in the form of a smartphone. I can send a, an invisible psychic message to almost anyone in the world instantaneously through the magic mirror that I am holding in my pocket. And of course, we have airplanes we have maglev trains, we have plastics, which are basically the ability to conjure materials. 
you know, material scientists can produce a plastic along a hundred different axes. They can basically create any material they need to for any purpose if they have the, the right uh, funding. And we also see this in a second way, which is the ability to create virtual worlds. So we can create illusions that are extremely convincing that are really constrained only by our mastery of mathematics and, and processing power. That is the so astral flight. Things, that is, in fact, the astral flight simulation. Yes. So we have all these things. And Seraphim Rose says they're a cult. I say, well, that's an understandable reaction. And I couldn't dispute that many of these things have subverted religion. They have subverted many of our philosophies and many of our inclinations, which I think you can... I didn't go really deep into the evolutionary mismatch theory, the idea that we're just adapted for a very different world than the one we built. And I think a lot of Christians and esotericists, for lack of a better word, uh, are really interested in this sort of juxtaposition of the Seraphim Rose critique and the Ted Kaczynski critique, and they come down against technology. I, I think this impulse should be resisted. I think if there is, so people, people want to have it both ways. They want to both say that technology is evil, technology is warping us, technology is to blame for many of our problems, but then they also want to praise or recover or protect Western civilization. And I say, what is Western civilization in a way, if not its technology, its mastery over nature, you know, and one of the points I make, which I've also raised elsewhere, is that science, uh, which we all sort of mock and because of its presence as an institution, its, its manifestation as an instrument of control and propaganda, but science really ought to be something that is pious, something that is aligned with God and with uh, the church and with sort of transcendent ideals, because in, especially in medieval times, uh, you know, most of the scientists, the people doing, doing science, if you like, were actually, they were Christians, they were monks. Uh, Isaac Newton, who is maybe a weird, and he's not medieval, obviously, but is, is kind of the archetype of a man who's both a Christian and a scientist, and also an alchemist, but, uh, and he has some weird kind of fringy beliefs, you could say he's kind of a, a, an extremist, but still, he was Christian. And uh, I think he's sort of the, an archetypal example of this. So I, I want to challenge the idea, the, the science hatred that a lot of people have embraced be opportunistically, because, you know, people are like, oh, science says that, uh, that a man can become a woman. Science says that you have to uh, take all these different pills and injections and so on. I don't really want to get into that too much. But we end up throwing the baby out with the bathwater a lot of the time. What should be done, actually, is, is we should understand that there's a hierarchy of ideals where science should be something that is subordinated to religious pursuits, to Christian pursuits, and it should be, when we, when we properly 
place it in that hierarchy, then it, it becomes something very different and it becomes a tool of uplift and it becomes a, a tool that actually should be wielded by the right. That's, that's sort of the core thesis. And I also get into the idea of social change and what that looks like a bit and how that should interact with science. Yeah, I think that's one of the most important parts of the essay. In there, you say, I believe it's in your discussion of Newton, that uh, in the past, the, the pursuit of science was the pursuit to know the mind of God. And then our consciousness is you know, the rational consciousness we utilize uh, and activate in order to pursue science is given to us by God. And, um, you know, some of the philosophers say that he gave us that in order so that God could perceive himself or that we were able to come to know God through our self-consciousness that animals don't possess. Um, so there was once a belief that the very purpose or reason for the tool of our consciousness was to know God better. And I hadn't seen that before, but you say in the article that uh, this pursuit of knowledge is in fact a pursuit uh, of the knowledge of God and that there's a driving force um, I'd like to say there's a driving force behind um, the, the men or the people who build civilization. And that driving force is sort of um, negated by technology or is it at least threatened to be negated by technology. It's an excellent essay by, I believe it was Henry James, I, or maybe it was Henry Adams, but it's called, it's called The Virgin and the Dynamo. It was written in the early 1900s, and he goes to the World's Fair, which was really a big deal uh, in the late 19th, early 20th century, because it was where they would display, you know, all the new technology that was coming out. And there was this very futuristic movement, and they would even display the way society and cities were going to be laid out in the future. And uh, he, he goes to one of these and he sees a dynamo, which is an internal combustion engine. And this essay is him speculating that this is going to sort of negate the driving force that animates culture. And he says, uh, he, he, he goes through and, and uh, enunciates the arduous task uh, uh, that building a cathedral undertaking, the, excuse me, the arduous undertaking that building a cathedral is, and that there has to be a driving spirit or a driving force within the culture to take all the cultural reserve economy that they have, that they have to use to, to make, to, you know, food, shelter, uh, raise families and, and build and maintain institutions. And they take this enormous uh, dip into their cultural reserve currency to build this uh, cathedral to honor Christ or uh, the Virgin Mother, uh, hence the title, the Virgin and the Dynamo. And he says that uh, all of this work that we do to, um, put into venerating um, the, the mystery, I guess I'll call it, uh, he sees that that it's going to immediately be taken over by the dynamo, the internal combustion engine, and it's going to sort of fizzle the light that uh, inspires inspires us to, to make these things. And I think you address that in this article in a big way because you talk about the, the correlation between... Uh, um, sort of societal progressivism, right? Moral progressivism and the search for liberation as, as the left calls it. And uh, maybe they 
see a correlation between technological progress and moral progress. Uh, whereas you say you don't think that's that's the case. I think if I'm characterizing you correctly, I'll let you I'll let you characterize it. That um, there seems to be evidence, and we can discuss this for an inverse correlation between technological progress and uh, moral progress, as the left calls it, moral progress, uh, where it's actually it's a it's an erosion of morality um, in the search for what they call liberation. Um, so maybe you can elaborate on that a little bit. Absolutely. And this is one of the big themes of my work, both in my fiction and in my, shall we say, auxiliary, auxiliary online presence, whether it's tweets or essays that I write, is that there is very much a conflation between what they call moral progress and technological progress because I, I don't think there's really any substance to the specific moral agenda of the, what I call the left. I, I am careful to say what I call the left because I have this argument a thousand times. What is the left? What does it mean to be left-wing? Who is the left-wing? I think it's obvious to a lot of people who consider themselves left-wing that the dominant powers in our culture are evil and morally bankrupt, but they still want to own the name of the left. Like to them, they see leftism as fundamentally something good, something that has to be good. And so they practice this kind of no true Scotsman fallacy where anything that's bad can't possibly be the left. And this is the same thing you encounter with people who say, oh, it wasn't real communism. Real communism has never been tried, which is such a cliche, but it's, it has objectively been tried many times and it always ends in ruin. And so people don't want to admit that fundamentally the ideas driving our culture today, the, the ideas in the driver's seat are left-wing ideas. And they may not be as left as the real leftists want, the real leftists, right, in quotes, they, you can always criticize from the left. You can always say, well, they're insufficiently holy. They're insufficiently pious. They aren't left-wing enough. They aren't really living up to the ideal. But the ideals, the cultural ideals, the, the sexual ideas especially, the racial ideals of our ruling class are very much more left than right. And people don't want to take ownership of that. The people who do take ownership of it are what's called neoliberal. Right, which just means a left-leaning person who isn't quite willing to, shall, shall we say, a left-leaning person driving the speed limit to sort of riff on the idea of a Republican as a, a progressive driving the speed limit. Same idea, same idea. And so it's, it's stolen valor. It's stolen valor to say that, you know, because of the internet uh, exists, therefore the emancipationist agenda of someone like Marcuse or Foucault is, uh, is, is metaphysically valid and correct. Why? Because someone built the internet, because someone built an internal combustion engine, therefore, uh, you know, all women need to be elevated into a statistically representative proportion of the managerial class. Like these things don't even begin 
to to follow each other logically. There's no uh, there's no possible logical path from that premise to that conclusion. And because because technology changes and knowledge accumulates, we're just supposed to accept that there is some moral arc of history that has to do with certain ideas, uh, you, you know, that, that are really quite modern, but are relatively new and that are frankly inane. So I, I want to try to orthogonalize those two sets of concerns. This is something that my software developer background informs. We are always trying to orthogonalize different concerns. That's, that's a major principle of software engineering, which I say in other places is a branch of applied philosophy. So yes, to answer your question. Well, let me ask you, um, me and you actually had a discussion about a year ago that was published on, uh, it's on your Substack. It may be on your WordPress as well. And we kind of got into it in that discussion. I'm going to uh, sort of reformulate a question I asked you there. Um, you're, you're, you're equating or you're at least coupling technological progress and moral progressivism. Um, and I think you do that in your fiction as well, especially in God-shaped whole. And I have to ask you, uh, why do you, why do you couple those two things? Do you, do you think it sort of goes without saying in, in society and especially on the left and especially with liberals that uh, moral progressivism cannot happen without technological progress? Um, and to sort of elaborate on the question a little bit, do you think um, technological progress uh, sort of uh, sort of um, sort of makes way for or allows for uh, moral progress? Or do you think that the two things don't really go hand in hand and that and that they that they I, I, because I almost wonder if moral progressivism feeds off of technological progressivism to the point where it begins to parasitize it. Um, but but that perspective is, is slightly flawed if you think and if if others, if the left thinks, if liberals think that um, they do go hand in hand and that as technology progresses, and becomes more sophisticated, uh, it, 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 it sort of allows for more liberation and freedom in the, in the leftist sense. Um, what, what do you think about that? I mean, that, that idea is sort of out there, right, in the world, but I don't see it enunciated all that often, except for in the things you were talking about, like with uh, like puberty blockers and uh, uh, sex change operations, which are, which are science. Um, once in a while, you see people being honest and they say that um, science allows the freedom to be who you are, to, to, to embody your sexual identity. And then, of course, with the pandemic, you see it a lot, too. Um, the, the, argue, the pro kind of lockdown pandemic measures, pro vaccine side, they're, they're beating the drum of science that this is the science, uh, trust the science, where that, that falls apart. And you have to wonder why, why do they resort to that? Why is that their argument? And, and I have to think it's because there's this unspoken concept in the West that, again, to repeat myself, moral progress and technological progress are uh, related. Um, so, yeah, I want to ask you, why do you think that if you think that and do you think that idea is out there and, and sort of permeating uh, left wing 
um, uh, sort of uh, apologism for their for their agenda. Right. It, it's an implicit idea that that is really uh, articulated, as you say, that what they call moral progress is necessitated by technological progress. And in, in some sense, yes, it's enabled. Like what they call moral progress, which I'm very careful to say, because I don't believe it is progress in any sense. Um, but those emancipation agendas are to some degree enabled by technology. What technology really does is it increases optionality. It makes more things possible. And so you can do things now with technology that were simply unthinkable in the past. And one of those things is give puberty blockers to children. But I don't think anyone, I don't think even the most strident progressive would say that the capacity to do something grants more legitimacy to that thing. And there are probably a lot of technologies that uh, that could be turned into products and, and mass produced and given to everyone that are not, that we don't make that choice, that we don't do, right? So there's, there's specific people driving all of these types of agendas. There's, there's people who think it is important, it's morally necessary to make transsexuality an option for everyone. And they work really hard and they do all of the, the managerial and bureaucratic uh, tasks that are required to drive visibility of these agendas in television and in media. They work very hard to make it so that government money is available to people who want to uh, perform, have these procedures performed. You know, it, a lot of it is subsidized. And I've worked at big companies before where basically there were there were forms you could fill out on the corporate intranet and within probably 20 minutes you could you could get yourself an appointment at a gender clinic to start going through this process like they make it very easy they want people someone when i say they that quickly becomes conspiratorial in the wrong way that quickly becomes big language they they are out to get you i i wish to avoid this type of thinking but there is, there's someone, there are specific people who want that possibility to exist for everyone and who think it's good. And in no way does the existence of that technology uh, mandate that it be mass produced and distributed and given to everyone. So I, I think we could imagine a very different technological future uh, than, than the one that we're getting. And this is in fact our great commission our great task especially on some level as sci-fi writers is to do exactly that well what do you what do you think about what i said uh in the beginning about the inverse correlation that as you see that uh liberation uh intensifies since say the 60s sexual liberation racial liberation uh things like that while while technological advancement has regressed or um devolved especially yeah. The best example is the space exploration program. Um, but there are others because you could, you know, someone could argue in the vein of what we're saying here that technological progress is evolving uh, in, in the realm of medicine. But what they're doing, uh, because there's, I think, a much bigger issue actually than, than the 
transgender surgery thing because that's still a marginal right uh, group contingent of people that uh, that it's affecting it has an outsized effect on the discourse the public discourse for some reason uh, but that's still a very small number of people that it's affecting something that affects an extremely large number of people are life extending medications even simple things like blood pressure and cholesterol medication that keep people alive much longer um it's almost like this cultural reserve currency i was talking about before gets gets put into that and 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 displaced off of the type of technology that we we were that was allowing us to envision all you know the star trek universe um we're not putting anything into that so if you look at say uh in the realm of tech uh moral progress right the 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 medicaid and medicare budget it's like over a trillion dollars combined and you 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 come you add uh, social welfare programs onto that we're looking at a trillion and a half whereas nasa we put like 20 billion dollars a year into so it's like the cultural priorities have changed and it's almost like it feels like we're there's technological stagnation i think a big theme of your you i think you might even say it in the essay near the end uh, tech technological stagnation is happening and that's uh enunciated nicely in peter thiel's quip that you quote that we were promised fine cars and we get 140 characters um I don't know if we've reached the end of our technological progress. We've just uh, we've just reverted or excuse me, we've just displaced uh, our cultural energy uh, off of that and onto these moral and progressive issues. Uh, so it's almost like that is parasitizing uh, the, the technological progress. I mean, is that how you see it? Or do you do you think that we have reached some technological dead ends and we're sort of just flailing now uh, coming up with uh, different iterations of the same, you know, iPhone every year. I, I guess I'm sorry, the question being, is that because there is nowhere more to go? Did we hit the ceiling or is it just because the energy is put more into to making money off of these things than it is to actually advancing the tech? You know what I mean? Right. No, well, there, there are a few places where technology has not yet gone, that it could still go. And if you look at what sci-fi imagines now, what current sci-fi imagines when it's even written, and it's actually pretty rare, I don't think there's much sci-fi now that contains technological speculation, which is one of the things that makes my writing perhaps stand out, is that a lot of people are still stuck, as I said, they're writing landline stories in a smartphone world. Oh yeah, that, that's actually the, the, the name of your essay, yeah. isn't it? I'm sorry, I said it wrong. Right, yes. No, that's okay. But there's still, well, the first subsection you, you quoted the name. But yeah, the, the, the title of it is Landline Stories in a Smartphone World. And what that means is most people really, most of the writers I encounter do not have a novel technological imagination. They are stuck very much in the tropes of the 1960s, the 1970s, really the exact thing Seraphim Rose was talking about. And I, I offer a bit of a speculation around why that is, which I'm developing in my head for a future essay, that, uh, and which I allude to in, in, in the one we're talking about, which is that we use technology to try to break the constraints of the world we live in. So we can only move at a certain speed, we find technology that liberates speed. We can only talk from a certain distance. We find technology that liberates communication. 
in a way. So it's undoing and, and undermining the constraints that we have in our world of atoms, as, as Peter Thiel says. And so there's only so many constraints you can undo before you end up with something which is no longer recognizably human. And this is one of the virtues of Seraphim Rose's occult stack, as I call it, is that he pretty much lays out the entire space of, of human constraints that both occultism and science fiction attempt to subvert. So sci-fi, not even sci-fi, science and, and technology are catching up with Seraphim Rose's uh, stack with what witches and occultists used to dream of, which is being able to possess bodies, being able to conjure anything. Like if you look at the stack uh, in the essay, we've achieved about 80% of it. And the things that remain, one of the big ones is the ability to take control of a body, uh, a human body, uh, from a distance and control it. And this is the subject of the speculation in my story, Don't Make Me Think, which is that using something like Neuralink, you pretty much complete the stack. You fill out the last of the things that Seraphim Rose identified. It's, it's to borrow a phrase from Star Trek, it's almost the last frontier of what occultism has imagined. So in a way, yes, we are not at a dead end, but we are nearing the end of that maze. And what you get when you complete that, when you fill out that stack, like I said, is something which is no longer recognizably human. It's transhuman or post-human. And that's a very real uh, eschatology, which is sort of what Seraphim Rose is driving at. Now, he conflates it with a lot of stuff that didn't make it out of the 1970s. Despite recent news attention on like UFOs, this is he thought that was going to be a big thing. He, he thought that this age of Aquarius, uh, you know, UFO abduction, alien uh, iconography was going to figure very largely in what he called the religion of the future. It, in fact, he almost completely misconceived how those technologies would be deployed and what ideas they would coalesce around. What we see, and in my opinion, the essential core of the of what what we might call the religion of the future is actually gender ideology, because it teaches us that there's something which is distinct from our body, distinct from our mind, which is called a gender identity, and no one can point to this. It's exactly as as abstract and sort of magical as a soul. Right? There's no, show me, show me on the doll, where is the gender identity located? No one can. And so I, I think that this form of mind-body dualism has come to dominate the religion of the future. And transhumanism now is mostly about trying to find ways to reify and to liberate that metaphysical entity from the body. Does that mean we're stuck? I don't know, but it's something we're going to have to overcome. What is the metaphysical identity? Uh, excuse me, the metaphysical oh, entity. 
Well, no, it doesn't. I mean, I claim it doesn't exist. It's it's your gender identity, not to imply that you have one. You're obviously a, a very uh, straight and heterosexual man, but the the belief, right, the sort of culmination of gender ideology is that you have a metaphysical component, which is essentially a soul, but they call it a gender identity. Right. But can we apply this to everything other than just gender? Could we apply this to the human soul itself? Because, um, well, let me answer that first before I well, go on. Yeah, I'd much rather talk about a soul than a gender right. identity. Right. Me too. Me too. A soul is a much nobler and better concept, right? And it's, it's more, ironically, it's much more human. Um, which perhaps is fitting. Well, the thing is, the oh, go ahead. Sorry, say that again. Yeah, no, that's all. I said it's it's filling the same psychological need for people who want to believe in a soul, but no longer can. Instead, they believe in a gender identity. Right. Well, and but they have a materialist view of of the body, correct? And they and they don't think that there is a soul that exists outside the body. They think that there is a they do, you know, one word that doesn't get used very often in those spheres is essentialism or anti-essentialism. But uh, they do believe in an essence, even though they consider themselves anti-essentialists, because if you were a man in a woman's body or vice versa, you do have an essence and they need uh, science to to approximate that essence to the best of, of science's ability. Um, otherwise, they're kind of just mimicking it, it's sort of just play acting without the actual uh, use of science to try to make their body fit uh, the essence that they believe that they are, that, that is their destiny, really. And these are all highly metaphysical, spiritual, and religious concepts that they think they're eschewing. But, um, you know, I don't even know if you mentioned gender identity in the essay, uh, because I, I, I think I personally think it is just one detail in the in the greater, uh, well, moral stack of uh, progressivism. And uh, as I was saying before, it seems to me that that we are we are focusing too much on uh, accommodating these progressive goals than we are on doing the work of building civilization. And I think that's why we're, we're um, flailing and stagnating. And I do think this is the message of your stories. Maybe I'll republish the essays I wrote on your stories. Uh, one of them I titled the uh, Western or the Faustian event horizon, because this really is a, a, a Faustian bargain, is it not? Uh, Spengler was pretty apt by calling the West the Faustian civilization. Uh, he defines it as like uh, striving for the infinite, trying to to reach the stars and and and, and encompass uh, or encapsulate all of infinity within human knowledge. But if you go on to read more of Spengler, especially the Man of Technics, um, the term Faustian is even more apt, right? Because this technological bargain is a uh, this excuse me this technological pursuit is a faustian bargain because once we achieve a certain uh, amount of technological progress we start to have to reap the consequences and i think one of the consequences of uh, knowing too much is uh this this uh societal or civilizational stagnation it's almost like uh the cost of us 
uh, wanting to learn all of this and to, to make all these advancements are advancing society so much that the societal moral progressive advancements uh, encroach upon the technological ones. And we can no longer, um, like I was saying before, we kind of hit the ceiling of the, uh, the glass ceiling of uh, technological progress because it has afforded us so much moral progress. Um, but you know what, let's, let's move on just because we're running out of time. Um, I, I, all I was saying for all that is uh, my point was that if you read God shaped whole in particular, the character uh, finds he's trapped in a digital prison. Uh, he, he finds others who realize they are also trapped in a digital prison. Um, and then they come up with a way to escape. And then at the end, I don't want to give it away, but uh, one comes away wondering if there is in fact an escape from this digital prison. And it's like this prison we've created by having this uh, morally progressive society that no longer allows uh, that spirit, that Faustian spirit or that spark I was talking about before to actualize itself in the world and build things. Um, but let's move on just for the sake of time, because you, uh, although it is related, you, you talked about the three doors. I, I think Peter Thiel laid this out and you elaborated on it, right? You could go through the one door where you get luxury space communism, which is what we have now. You go through the third door, uh, excuse me, you go through the second door, and you have uh, like green anarchism or the green, uh, uh, what do they call that? Uh, the, the Green New Deal, which is technological regression, uh, which you call cowardice. And then the third door, which, which sounds like uh, some form of fascism. Um, and this, is, this, this insight I'm about to make about the third door actually underpins my entire line of questioning to you here. Uh, why it why does the third door the one that involves technological futurism the one that leads to technological futurism why does that look fascistic you said it looks like uh sharia law or maybe peter Thiel said that why uh, he said that okay he said that why do we have to constrain all of these uh liberatory moral progressive goals in order to have technological futurism well, i mean why do you think what does he think, you think? Right. Well, he doesn't say that last part. He doesn't believe that uh, further technological progress is contingent on, shall we say, a more patriarchal or uh, authoritarian society. It begs I, the I question why that. he brings up Sharia law, though, at all. Well, he mentions it because it's different. He, what, his, his exact quote, I believe, is that in order for the future to have power over the present, the future has to look different from the present. So there aren't that many ways that we can imagine a future that looks different from the present. And one of the really obvious ways is basically to look at Islam and to imagine a Sharia law society. So he says that's one way the world could go in the sense that it's an obviously different vision and it takes but let me jump in here because they are a technologically regressive society so yes so the question is uh I mean, there's there's a, a couple of things that cause that right like the question we have to ask is is it their religion is it their culture that has constrained 
their technological progress. Because really, what we call Western civilization, if we're being more specific, Germans and Anglo, like an English people, and maybe French, like there's about three small groups of people who have really driven technological uh, development in the world, right? It's anomalous. It's anomalous to be creating technology uh, at the scale and at the, at the level of grandeur that we do. This is why you mentioned the Faustian society and this, this attempt to uh, grasp the infinite is because this is pretty rare. There's not, there's a small nucleus of people who've actually done this. And so I think it's a bit of, it's, it's not possible to answer this question cleanly, especially in a short space. Why exactly is it? This is one of the major debates I think of historians, whether it comes to technology and, and all of, and warfare, why is it that we, or at least people who are related to us, shall we say, people in our extended family are the ones who've created technology and driven it. So it's not, it's not a guarantee. It's not like, oh, you create patriarchal authoritarian culture, you get technology. But I think that the entire problem can be summed up in a picture, which I've tweeted out a few times. There's this woman, she's obese, and she's uh, got a wheelchair, and a kid in a wheelchair, and she's holding a sign that says, millions for space, pennies for the hungry. And the visual irony of this picture is striking, but it also, to me, encapsulates really the answer to your question, which is that there will always be an endless number of people who are hungry in this sense. You could burn 100% of your capital, of your time, of your energy, really your whole soul trying to feed these hungry, I'm using hunger as a stand-in for a variety of problems, right? Trying to feed these hungry masses because the more you feed them, the more they grow and the more hungry people they produce. When you subsidize net consumers, you get more net consumers and the need for subsidy grows and they never escape. The only thing that, that gives you an exit velocity from that cycle is the ability to say no, is the ability to let the hungry go hungry on some level and to turn your attention towards things that are higher and beautiful. If you, if you take this attitude to its logical conclusion that what I would call the Omelas attitude, the ones who walk away from Omelas, this is, this is the archetypal leftist metaphysics is that literally no one may even feel pain and you're not allowed to do anything else, no technological development, no literature, no art, no culture, nothing. You just are obligated to endlessly cater to the needs of the lowest before you're allowed to do anything positive, anything uplifting. And this is, this is the mentality of stagnation. This is the mentality of failure. And that's why I personally think that an authoritarian and patriarchal society is a necessary precondition of further technological development. Is that an Ursula K. Le Guin story? The ones who walk away from Omelas? Yes. yes, it is very short and it is a very important story. It is the mentality that I wish to destroy it is the perfect encapsulation of leftist metaphysics. 
is she criticizing that or is she propounding it in that story? Because she's a darling of the left, even though I think she's a great writer. Yeah, she has some surprisingly good work. But in my, my reading of it is that she is absolutely endorsing the, well, for, for, if you, for those who may not know, the story is very short and it describes a, an urban paradise where everything works, everything's beautiful, it's safe, it's bountiful, it's technologically advanced, it's clean, and everything is good except deep in the bowels of the city there's some kind of, of torture reactor where there's like perhaps a single child strapped into a pain machine and somehow the pain machine creates i mean this isn't expounded in the story this is sort of how i i view it somehow the pain machine is necessary to the function of the city everything good every all these, these bounties of technology that come out of the city are in some way caused by the fact that this child is suffering and it's important for the story that the child is innocent right and so there's a few people the story is called the ones who walk away or those who walk away from omelos because there are people who find out this reality and they can't stomach it and so they leave they leave paradise they leave technological utopia because it's unacceptable to them that even this one child should suffer now there is a bit of sleight of hand going on there in the way that this is all portrayed. And my personal headcanon, to borrow a word from, from pop culture, is that those exact people who walk away from Omelas found the society of Harrison Bergeron. Like Diana Moonglampers, the, the handicapper general of Harrison Bergeron, she's the one who walked away from Omelas. She said, you can't have anything beautiful. You can't have anything good. You can't reach for the stars because one child is suffering. Now, what I, what I, one of the things I dislike about this story and about this perspective is that the child is assumed to be innocent. It's basically saying with an inverted pyramid that all of our good things are built on the back of, of oppression and oppression of innocent people. I don't think that's true at any level, but that is the leftist claim. The reality is that nature left if, if we just exist in nature, all nature gives us are sticks and flies and mud and rain and viruses. And all of our beautiful things are built through effort, through sacrifice, through, through noble struggle against nature in many ways. So we need to align ourselves with the demands of nature, but we also have to fight in order to exist in nature in a way that that is elevated and what uh that's that's not what omelis believes omelis believes that all the good things are basically magic and free as long as we oppress someone who's innocent this is this is simply this is facile uh those who have good things largely not exclusively have them because of of sacrifice and struggle on their own part and now we in, in modernity are mostly just the inheritors of the struggles and sacrifices of our long dead ancestors, right? And so the leftists think these things are free. They think they're just automatic. They think they're the state of nature and the oppression of the cruel child is just there for no reason. And we, and we shouldn't bear it. So that's, that's the, 
that's the advanced luxury communism outlook. And that's the thing that I offer patriarchal authoritarianism uh, to as a cure, as a counteroffer. Yes, well, uh, do you have much time for another question or do we have to leave it there? I think we can do one more. Ah, excellent. Okay, so I, I think our predecessors uh, that you speak of, that the left thinks, uh, th that doesn't think we inherited uh, this great edifice that they you know, struggled and died for to, to leave us uh, to enjoy, uh, it all came for free. <sighs> Something that you said in your American Mind essay, and I, unfortunately, I, I worry this essay, I think you called it the new Tlan. Uh, I, I tried to revive that essay at one point because I feel like it got overlooked in your, in your uh, oeuvre because I think it's one of your most important essays. You say something in there that uh, also Heidegger says in the Der Spiegel interview um, that only a God, well, Heidegger says only a God can save us, but he also says, uh, they ask him, well, what do we do now? Uh, he says, we make art uh, for ourselves and for God and wait for him to come and appreciate it. And you say basically the same thing that we make art for ourselves and God and any other onlookers are, are coincidental. Uh, correct me if I got that wrong. And to get back to the Virgin and the Dynamo, um, so our predecessors who built the edifice of civilization that we all get to enjoy, they were all focused and driven by the same thing. And they all saw themselves working together to build the cathedral, but also to build, uh, to build their culture and their civilization as a whole. Whereas now it's almost like uh, there's a cacophony of visions and there's a cacophony of, uh, of, uh, uh, goals that people in our civilization want and they're not all focused on the same thing and it's sort of I think this is part of what what um, creates the stagnation so to loop all this back to your god-shaped hole it's like part of that cacophony is people saying we need to fulfill you know sexual desire or sexual needs uh, or, or other forms of hedonistic pleasure um, and the subject in God shaped hole and the subject in our society is like constrained by that. And he's unable to, to, like I said earlier, break free or to, to make anything new. Um, and it's getting sort of drowned out the person with the vision that all of society maybe had in the past to build a cathedral. The person with the vision is drowned out by someone who has maybe a, a, a hedonistic counter idea for what we should do with our civilization. Um, so what I want to ask you is, uh, do you consider yourself a horrorist uh, as a person who writes nonfiction and looks to the future? Or do you think there is a way out? And if your way out is uh, only a God can save us and, and we wait for him to come uh, see the, the art we're making for him and to show it to him, what does that look like in practical terms? Uh, I hope that's not too big of a question. I, I've always yeah, wanted to ask you, you know, that, though. I've always wanted to ask you what that looks like to you in practical terms. The honest answer is that I really wish I knew. I think no one really has answers to that question. And it's one of the main criticisms or, or even just uh, points of contention that I get, right, is that my work seems to offer mostly uh, a negative. And so they say, where is the positive vision? And the fact is, 
I don't know. I, I think that in a way, I'm, I'm trying to, to move away from writing stories that are purely negative. And when I think about what I want to write in the future, it does need to reach in a, in a direction that provides vision. But in a way, you, you run into very dangerous territory here because it's very easy to criticize and it's very easy to say what is wrong. And it's much, much harder to know what is correct and what is good. And so I think that one of the things that we're doing by providing these criticisms and by honestly just telling jokes at the expense of our rulers is we are hopefully creating a cultural reserve from which better ideas and, and corrections of these errors can emerge. So in a sense, what is the point of, of Bronze Age pervert? What is the point of my writing? What is the point of any of this? is to create things that inspire and that uplift and move people towards acts of not just strength of the body, but strength of the will, strength of the spirit in order to escape what is holding us back psychically. Because I think if you, or, or psychologically, because I think if you look around, um, people are, spiritually deflated partly that that could be from an excess of sexual hedonism but very quickly also the corrective to that becomes just as oppressive just as restrictive like it takes about 10 days to go from rejecting the sexual excesses of our culture to uh go to Zuma Theosis who thinks you shouldn't look at your wife naked. And it's just, it's inevitable. It's inevitable that we're going to have these kinds of spirals. It's like people can't, there's no such thing as a middle ground. There's no such thing as a centrist. The minute you get off of the left slope, and the, the minute you hit the crest, you immediately start rolling right in ways that can be, or not rolling right, what I should say is, you immediately, when you escape the pathologies of the left, start falling into the pathologies of the right. So finding someone with the strength to walk along the virtuous and narrow path is very hard. And there's a quote from Nietzsche, which I'd like to end on, which is, he says that a nation is a detour to reach perhaps two or three great men and then to get around them. So in this virtual nation that we are creating, that we're participating in, we're trying to get to two or three great men. Okay, well, that's an excellent way to, uh, to end the show and to end this discussion. I would like to implore, and perhaps even uh, desperately so, for you to come back and do this again. There's so much we didn't get to. Um, you are quite the Renaissance man and you, you have your, your hand in so many different ideas that um, I, I hope, I like to think we encapsulated them nicely in this discussion, but uh, there's so much more to talk about that, uh, you know, I hope you come back with us. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be a pleasure. Well, thank you so much for your time, and we're going to sign off now. Uh, until next time, this is the Astral Play Simulation. <laughs>
Dungeon.